You are listening to another tale from the Mage's Den, the podcast for the Common Tongue magazine, The Bells of Creighton by Evan Davis, narrated by Carl Walmsley. The Order of the Lily, a knighthood named and formed under the Duchess of Corbeil's birthflower, protected any in need, be they peasant or merchant, shepherd or banker. Besides these duties, however, there was another for which the Knights of the Order were chiefly responsible. That was the Beast of Meldan. How long has it been now? Five years? Seven? The knights tried in vain to cover a loud belch. Come, Sir Baron, you cannot tell me you're so lost in drink you've forgotten today. So then, it. <laughs> if we all counted years the way you do, friend, men would all die well after one hundred. No, three. It is the beast's third birthday. Thank you, Sir Jean. A straight answer was all I needed. Who rides out to meet it this time? I heard Sir Brian never returned. Sir Milton of Cradleback. He leaves tonight, actually. And alas, you are well informed. A farmer's daughter claimed to have seen Sir Brian's body near the estate's northern wall. She says she only recognised him by his coat of arms. Is it truly any surprise? Sir Baron leaned in more closely and whispered. It was always said Bryant was a bit of a chicken heart. You speak ill of the dead now, do you? Sir Jean smiled as the drunken knight blushed and sank in his chair some. Sir Jean continued, After all, we all know it was his love of chicken outs in onion and garlic that did him in. The two each bellowed a hearty laugh. It was a wonder his squire could still buckle his breastplate, laughed Sir Baron, wiping a tear from his eye. Sir Jean nodded, still chuckling. So, he said, Will you take up the oath next, presuming Sir Milton doesn't succeed? Ah, oh, well, you see, let's see how he fares. They say the day that Sir Roderick went to seize the traitorous Count of Creighton in the first place, it was the Countess herself that became the beast, that she was a witch driven mad at the loss of her husband. And I have sworn an oath to never strike a lady, even if that lady now resembles a giant hound. Sir Jean was nodding along mockingly, but stopped suddenly. A hound, he said. When Sir Geoffrey fell against the beast, I had heard his squire had described it as a large harpy, a woman with talons on wings. Well, that makes you as daft as a Benoit. He believed the rumour that the beast was an enormous serpent with rainbow-coloured scales. Tch, preposterous. The beast is a giant hound with mange and yellow eyes. Mark my words. The stories be what they may. We are knights of the Order of the Lily All. Let us raise our cups to Sir Milton of Cradleback and toast his victory over the beast and the glory that will be his. To glory. To the end of the beast. Huzzah. The moon was high and the stars were bright over the tall grass as Sir Milton of Cradleback approached the Creighton estate. Seen through the rusted bars of the front gate and over its crumbling outer stone walls, the manor stood under the moonlight 
as a monument where nightmares were collected like offerings. Milton's grip on his mare's reins tightened as he got closer, and he could now see the grey light play on dead plants which littered the courtyard's former gardens. Anxiety made his neck grow hot and pinpricks danced along his scalp. The knight shook away these distractions and steeled himself. He would not fail in his oath to slay the beast of Meldan, but more importantly, he would survive in his vow to see his son again. He dismounted as he neared the gate. The wind was still as Milton forced the metal bars apart. A gust swept through the courtyard, and the estate's eastern bell tower tolled his arrival. He fumbled shakily through his saddlebags for some flint and steel to light his torch. His mare snorted nervously. Sword by his side, shield at the ready and torch in hand, Sir Milton stepped through the gate, while the bells of Craden Estate continued to ring. They did this until they struck a count of twelve, midnight. The crunch of gravel under Milton's boot filled the silence that fell as the bell's toll faded. As he stepped through the dead gardens of the courtyard, he finally found what he'd expected, the remains of another night. He passed his torch over the coat of arms on the man's shield and saw a lion framed in laurels, Sebectic of Murbury. Milton took a knee. Bectic was a good man, he muttered. Perhaps not always the kindliest, but good and gracious of heart always. The knight's body was covered in wounds, and claw marks had torn through the plate of his armour. Sir Milton had prepared himself for this. He knew what to expect when he took the vow to slay the beast. What he hadn't expected was what he found on the ground next to Sebectic. Feathers. Large ones lay scattered around the fallen knight. Milton had been told to expect a beast that was part man, part wolf. And as he lifted his torch and searched, his findings only left him further perplexed. Beside the feathers, there were tufts of fur, scales of different shades and lengths, fangs of different sizes and points, hoof prints larger than any stallions, and even dried sludge of varying colours that all littered the grounds. The rumours, Sir Milton quietly muttered to himself as he stepped into the mansion's foyer. The rumours were each true, it seems. Perhaps the beast is more otherworldly than words can describe. With features of all kinds, serpent, hawk, man, hound, even those eldritch and unnamed. He stepped through the empty rooms of the abandoned estate, the creaking floorboards and crackling of his torch, the only sounds above the claustrophobic silence. He found himself in the kitchen, and his heart nearly leapt from his chest at what he found. Some two metres tall and trailing down an opposite hallway was the empty, shed skin of a serpent. The vacant eyes of the dead skin seemed to listlessly stare at him. Once his heart calmed, the knight passed his torch over the husk and said a small prayer as it quickly flaked away. The beast must change its shape, he said. Either over time or by need, I will have to be wary. 
A sudden growl from the room at his back made Sir Milton spin around with his shield raised. Beyond the doorway at the opposite side of the room was the form of a creature slowly crawling towards him. As it was dark, the knight could only observe its details by the fading fire of the burning husk behind him and the sparse beams of moonlight which shone through the broken ceiling. It looked like a large man crawling on his hands and feet, but its face belied that pretense. The creature had several eyes like a spider, and the corners of its mouth had the mandibles of one as well. As it drew closer, Sir Milton could see it was limping from one of its many wounds. It stopped ten paces from the night and stood there watching him. Slowly, and with careful movement, Sir Milton placed his torch in an empty sconce along one of the walls and drew his sword. The creature growled and moved subtly, but stood its ground. You are the beast. The creature's nails dug in the floorboards, poised to strike, but still for the moment. Its breath was haggard and its eyes were low and menacing. May I give you peace? Milton continued. Though you may not know you seek it, reduced to such a pitiful form from years spent battling my brothers. My only regret will be in not defeating a formidable opponent, but one so weakened. The knight raised his sword. On my oath, my vow, by the order of the Lily and Her Highness the Duchess of Corbeil, I will strike you down. Of a sudden, a ghostly wind broke through the shutters. The sound of the bell tower swept through the room, extinguishing the torch and husk, leaving the room dark. Just as suddenly, the creature gnashed its teeth and let out a wrenching cry, like the howling of a fox and moaning of a man in one. Sir Milton was thrown from his feet as something slammed against his shield. He choked on a cloud of ash and tumbled end over end through the kitchen. He stood but cried out when the monster's claws dug their way into his hip. Blindly, he swung his sword at the beast. The blade connected and the claws released him. The sound of skittering drew away. Sir Milton's eyes finally adjusted to the dark, and he could make out the beast's eight shimmering eyes against the black. There came another howl. And Sir Milton reacted just in time to the sight of the beast charging through a column of moonlight. He parried the beast's charge with his shield and brought his sword down on his hind legs. Again, a howl, and it spun on him as the two traded blows. A strike from his sword was answered with a flurry of claws grating against his plate, which was itself answered by a blow against the beast's surprisingly thick hide. A swift movement swept the knight's feet out from under him and left him prone. The creature's nails against the floor signalled a pounce. Milton rolled to the side and flashed his blade in the air. There came the sickening crunch of steel against bone, and the beast's body crumpled lifelessly to the floor where Milton had been a moment before. Haggard, the knight pulled himself to his feet and stepped warily close to the creature's inanimate form. A prod from his sword confirmed it. The beast of Meldan was dead. 
Unbelievable. After three years and dozens of his brothers who had taken up the vow before him, Sir Milton had accomplished what no other had been able to do. He stepped back onto the gravel courtyard and filled his lungs with the crisp nighttime air of the countryside. Beside the glory of at last vanquishing the beast which had plagued the order, his mind was consumed with a singular emotion, joy at the thought of seeing his son again. But then the air fell still, and with a sudden gust the bell tower rang out again, and he felt his mind shatter, his vision blurred, his stomach twisted, and his bones felt as if they'd grown sharp spines. He fell to the ground and cradled his head. Every toll of the bell was a hammer to the core of his being. He cried out, and his own voice sounded distant and strange. The hands that held his head became clawed and scaled. The teeth which bit his lips grew into fangs, and the buckles of his armour snapped as his bones elongated and thickened. He thrashed about in the gravel, and his claws scraped against Sebectic's shield. It was the shield's reflection that revealed the moon and the monster he was becoming. Sir Milton had one final lucid thought before his mind was lost to him. The stories, the sightings, they've all been true, every one of them. The beast of Meldan this whole time. My God, we've been killing ourselves. Every day, the sun rose on Sir Milton as the beast of Meldan. His new frame was long and scaled, but his new limbs were such that he crawled with his belly low to the ground. His mind was often muddled and wandering, his focus sharpening beyond the base or reptilian only with great difficulty. However noble or disciplined Sir Milton of Cradleback may have been as a man, his primal urges as the beast were satiated all too readily. New challenges came with every cycle of the moon, sometimes sooner. He might use this to keep time if not for what always followed. Every time a challenger would approach the grounds and the bell tower would toll. Whenever he was within the manor or hidden about the estate, he would be compelled to answer the bell's call, lest he endure a pounding in his temples like a stamping horse and a hunger that twisted his insides. He would approach the newcomer knight like a child awaiting punishment, but all they would see was a snarling monster. Then, as they drew their swords and recited their oaths, Milton would lose his mind to rage and awaken after an uncertain time with fresh wounds and a swollen stomach. He could not end his own life to break the cycle, and neither could he leave the estate's grounds. He had tried both but he was now shackled to this life by the power of whatever curse held him here. He was the beast, bound to the Creighton estate. But why? 
He'd heard magicians speak in Her Highness's court on rare occasions, and oft-times they would speak of curses and their workings. But how could this be? As a man, Sir Milton had made it his life's aim to defend, not offend, to protect, not abuse, and he had never stood idly by when innocents were persecuted in his presence. How could he be the object of a curse when he had never warranted the scorn of any who might lay it? The wind picked up in the courtyard, and he indulged his new habit of looking to the bell tower, though he found it curiously still. The gentle countryside breeze blew over the dried garden beds and massaged the wounds between his scales. Milton looked transfixed at the defiantly silent bell tower. Then he heard something else. He slithered around to the side of the manor where the sound was coming from. It was a voice. Mittens! Psst! Mittens! It was the voice of a small girl. She crawled through a hole in the eastern wall and stepped timidly into the courtyard. Mittens, where are you? She was shaking, neither from cold or nerves, and kept her wrists clutched tightly to her chest. Milton took a step forward, but stopped at the sight of his own clawed foot. From the shadow of the manor, he watched the little girl search for her lost cat. He felt no hunger, no rage. No compulsion to go forward. All he felt was loneliness, reminded by the child's presence, the smothering isolation of being a prisoner here. As the beast, he was now hunted and loathed by those he'd once protected. So he remained in the shadow, safely removed from the stray peasant girl. She searched for perhaps a quarter of an hour and then left back through the hole in the wall. Dawn would soon break. The bell tower loomed over Milton as he crawled out into the vacant courtyard. The structure continued to taunt him with its enigmatic silence. The beast huffed a resolute breath from his snout and slithered to the base of the tower. His claws grating echoed off the dark walls of the ascending passage. He didn't know what to expect once at the top, but the bell's mysterious song seemed the only promise of answers to the reason for his fate. The skin beneath his scales shivered at what he found there. The skeletal remains of a nobly dressed woman hung from the rafters of the tower. Milton's reptilian eyes slowly traced the faded details of the fabric, where weathered bone showed through holes in her gown, and the wisps of her hair which blew loftily in the breeze. The rising sun broke the horizon and splashed the hills with its deep amber warmth. As the light washed over the tower, words revealed themselves, inscribed along the rim of the bell's interior. Milton circled the woman and the bell, which read, You love your oath so much, hear one from me now. I curse you, Roderick of Leroux and your whole order. The world will see you for the monsters you are. The truth that lurks beneath polished armour, hides beneath decorations, and slithers under laurelled stories. 
Your shallow vows will bring you to fall on your own swords again and again. The truth of my pain will resound through the generations until the last of your order. His mind reeled with the words and their meaning. And while little made any sense, one observation stood out to him above the muddled miasma. The focus on their oaths. While the bells always compelled him to meet the next challenger, it was never until their oaths were spoken that his will was taken from him completely. But those racing thoughts were soon splintered like a ship cast upon the rocks when the bells suddenly tolled. The familiar hunger rumbled in his belly and his predator's eyes narrowed. He crawled to the edge where he could see the new knight approach. Immediately his blood chilled and his stomach turned. The approaching knight, with his shield at his side and with a banner in hand. Both bore the same coat of arms, a sparrow rising to the sun. Milton's own. Even if he could say at first it was a deceptive trick of the light or mirage of a foggy mind, his bestial sense of smell confirmed it. Milton's son, Pavel, had come to avenge his father. Panic gripped his heart as he felt the heavy strikes of the bells dig into his mind. He scrabbled over the edge and quickly scaled down the side of the tower, throwing himself into the courtyard. Milton would not allow the magic here to force his hand against his own child. However, his mind grew more and more clouded as the tower's ringing filled the courtyard. He could not run, he could not hide, and he knew that soon the bells would rob him of his will. He thought of Sebectic and what the beast must have felt in the moments before the oath was spoken. What might he have said? if there was only some way to make Pavel see. The idea struck Milton's mind in the final moments before the bell's magic made him their puppet again. He desperately scrabbled to the gardens near the front gate. With two sweeps of his strong serpentine tail, he cleared the gravel and exposed the soil. Right! Milton screamed in the beast's mind. Tell him! The bell's enchantment slowly stained his mind like ink bleeding into paper. Draw the sounds, he thought with gritted teeth. But to his muddled mind, it was like trying to neatly trace the line of a worm writhing on a fisherman's hook. With the last of his volition, Milton finished his message and sank behind the beast's eyes. His only hope now rested in the hands of his own begotten son. Sir Pavel of Cradleback approached the Craden estate and dismounted his horse. He planted his banner firmly in the soil as he surveyed the damnable grounds. His heartbeat and breathing quickened, though not with nerves, but excitement. He had pleaded with his father not to pursue the beast, and two years ago, when he had not returned, Pavel's anguish fermented into hatred. He was already a page at the time, and he quickly proved his worth. He was knighted under the order and took up the vow to slay the beast of Meldan. He strode through the gates with his sword drawn and was not made to wait any longer. He followed his father's own footsteps through the courtyard 
Now he would finally avenge him after what had felt like an eternity. About 20 paces ahead was a creature the likes of which Sir Pavel had never seen before. Its body resembled a crocodile, though bearded with limbs as long as a man's. At its feet, the knight saw something odd. Words messily scrawled in the ground. They read, No tock, no sword. Pavel looked to the beast. It stood in place before him with its eyes fixed on his, breathing deeply and rhythmically, kneading the rocks with its claws. There were signs of battle painting the grounds, strewn shields, sundered armour, broken blades and scattered bones. There were also scales, feathers, filth and other evidence of the beast's many forms. He looked again to the message, clawed in the dirt, and raised his sword at the beast. He would not be fooled by the creature's tricks. Beast of Maldan, he called, you will die by my hand today. This I have sworn, and this I will do, on my oath to the Order of the Lily and my father Milton of Cradleback, whom you slew. My blade will spill your blood upon these stones. Corbeil will be free of your wretched presence. The monster's eyes rolled back into its head. Its maw opened wide, wider than any animal should be able, and loosed a guttural roar. Its legs frantically raked at the earth as it charged the knight. Sir Pavel leapt to meet the monster's charge. His sword flashed as he jabbed at the monster's open mouth, but a flailed claw parried it to the side. The knight swung with the momentum and slammed the creature's head with his shield. Dazed, the beast staggered, and Sir Pavel seized the moment. He swung his sword at the monster's side, cleaving deep into its hide and again against its neck as it recoiled in pain. He raised his sword to drive the point into the wound, but was overtaken by the unnatural speed of the beast's tail. The first bash knocked Pavel off balance, and the second swept him off his feet. As he recovered his standing, the beast rushed him, gripping his torso crossways in its maw. He drove his back against the rusted gate and its teeth sunk into the muscles beneath his armour. The knight cried out in pain, all but certain he would follow the fate of his father. Instead, there was a momentary flicker in the beast's eyes, and it seemed to hesitate for an instant. Its grip loosened and Sir Pavel found his breath again. No, he thought, its wounds are catching up with it. The knight aimed a blow at the monster's front leg, cleanly severing its foot. It released him at once, howling in agony. He drove the beast back across the courtyard with a flurry of wrathful blows. Wounded, the monster fought like an animal on the brink of death. It lashed weakly at him with its tail and snapped its fangs defensively at his sword. Now there was an unmistakable change in its eye debilitated by its injuries. Sir Pavel marched confidently in pursuit as it fled across the grounds and limped up the stairs of the estate's bell tower. The knight ascended to the tower steps. He would finish the cornered beast. At the top, 
He found it curled around a column opposite the stairway, but that wasn't the first thing he noticed. A noblewoman's dress hanging loosely on skeletal remains, suspended by a noose around the neck, greeted him first. Having come too far to be dissuaded, the young knight defiantly stepped forward. You have wrought much death, Kerr, Pavel shouted, and now you will answer for it. The beast shuddered some, but did not move. Instead, it looked at him with unfeeling, reptilian eyes. Clearly dogged by its wounds, it would pounce, but not before the opportunity arose. An opportunity Pavel would not afford it. So quickly robbed of nerve, monster, Knight taunted. Come to me. The beast did not move. I said come to me, damn you. The beast remained still. The knight gritted his teeth and what followed happened quickly. A sudden gust swept over the tower's peak and the bells rang out. As their din racked Pavel's ears so close, the beast let out a horrible wailing shriek. It roared, clawed the edges of its perch and leapt madly at the young knight. Pavel reacted quickly but was tackled to the floor. He struggled frantically to wrench himself free from under the monster's weight but soon stopped. The beast wasn't moving. Pavel pushed the creature aside with all his remaining might and he could see his sword in the creature's chest. The beast of Meldan was dead at last. So Pavel clambered to his knees and shouted at the sky. He threw his helmet to the floor as the tears burned through the soot that caked his cheeks. This day, the sun rose on a world that saw vengeance for his father and so many others. His oath was fulfilled. A sound like crackling bone pulled the knight out of his lamentations. A sudden cold came over him, like he'd been blanketed in frost, and there was a deep ringing that clawed madly behind his eyes. He fell to the stone floor as his body writhed and contorted with unnatural agony. The bells continued to toll, and the last sight Pavel beheld when darkness took him were the mournful, dead eyes of the beast. Pavel's eyes slowly fluttered open. Just as slowly, he climbed down from the rafter where he'd been perched that day, but did so carefully to avoid aggravating the recent wound in his side. In the months since becoming the beast, a creature now resembling a large man with the features of a bat, he'd learned much. He knew where best to prey on rats within the estate and how to glide and to fly. He also knew that he could not leave. Like his father before him, he'd learned the rules of his sentence. He'd read the words on the bell and had answered their call. He had met his brothers in their challenges, had lost his mind to their oaths and always awoke an untold time later. But his punishment under the curse could not match the nightmares he suffered. Pavel now knew his place in the cycle of the curse placed on the order. But what he would never know was if the beast before him had been the monster he'd meant to slay, 
or whether it was the very father he had endeavoured to avenge. He knew little respite from the absence of that closure, save for the jewels when his mind was not his own, or nights like this, where he was free to simply watch the moon for a time. This night was different. Pavel lumbered out of the manor to take his usual place on the northern wall and watch the moon, but stopped, for in the courtyard stood a figure. Pavel looked to the silent bell tower looming against the stars, then back to the newcomer knight. His armour gleamed and his sword mutely lifted to point at the beast. Pavel was stunned. This man wasn't from the Order of the Lily. He tried to speak, but only released a bark and series of clicks. He thought of the beast before him and began frantically clearing the gravel, clawing into the dirt. Without the bell's hooks in his mind, it wasn't easy, but the words weren't impossible to summon. After a few moments, Pavel retreated to the side, revealing his name scrawled in the soil. The knight remained still a moment, then stepped cautiously nearer. He read the message and looked to the beast. Pavel held out a clawed hand, fingers splayed. The knight removed his helmet and Pavel was perplexed by what he saw. The knight pulled a tie and long, golden hair came loose in frilled waves. Well, the woman said, this is certainly a surprise. The woman's name was Sophia, and she was a knight of the Order of the Dawn in Fenris, Corbeil's neighbour to the south. Word of the beast had finally spread beyond the Dutch's borders, and Sophia had come to see the monster for herself. She'd heard all the stories, the accounts of the creature in different forms, and the muddled history and rumours gave rise to her doubt. So she set out to confront the beast, a quest of her own making. Free of the oath held by those sworn to the lily, and in the company of the cursed Pavel, she gained a fuller understanding than any outsider before her. After seeing the words inside the bell, she departed Craden Estate on the vow to return with aid that would break the curse's hold on the Order of the Lily. Pavel waited for weeks. He would sit on the northern wall, watching the road for Sophia's return. Eventually, one evening as the sun was low in the sky, riders appeared in the distance. Sophia led an escort of eight armed men and an elderly individual in light blue robes. The company rode through the gates and dismounted in the courtyard. As Sophia approached, Pavel watched from his perch with trepidation, uneasy with the idea of meeting such an immense armed group. Perhaps the knight had intended to hunt him after all. I'm sorry, she called out. They're just a precaution, I assure you. This is Master Ogmund. She motioned to the robed man. May he have a look at you? Pavel shifted uneasily but didn't protest. His eyes belonged to the spears carried by each man. All right, all right, she said calmly. I'm just going to show him the wording on the bell then, OK? She nodded to the beast to confirm the arrangement and Pavel left his perch, 
flapping great wings that carried him to the tower ahead of them. Sophia led the magician to the estate's bell tower. There, he found the noblewoman's remains and the curse's inscription. What can be done? Sophia asked after a few minutes of contemplative silence from the magician. Can the magic be undone? Master Ogmund kneaded his beard thoroughly before responding. Yes, perhaps, yes. Bring the creature, he said, motioning to Pavel. He watched the proceedings while gripping the side of the tower. Bring him to the gardens, and for God's sake, cut the poor girl down. This is her home. She doesn't deserve to be denied her rest any longer. The old man made his way down the stairs and Sophia exchanged looks with Pavel, but did as she was told. In a few minutes, the whole company, Pavel and the Countess's remains, were convened in the estate's gardens. The magician formed a circle between himself, Sophia, and Pavel. All around the Countess, and bid them join hands. Pavel, aware of his form as a large bat, paused apprehensively. Yes, including you, Ogman said, opening an eye to look at him. You're deeply a part of this now. It's important you see what she has to show us. They completed the circle and soon collectively fell into a deep sleep, where together they shared a dream. In it they saw the estate on a clear day. The manor's roof no longer had its holes. The gardens were vibrant and flourishing and people walked its grounds. A company of horsemen approached from the road, and a brightly dressed man was walking out to meet them. That's Count Craden, Pavel thought, and that's Sir Roderick of Leroux. He was suddenly struck how easily the lucid thought came to him after months of his mind being mired in the curse's magic. It felt like the release of a weight he'd forgotten was there. Yes, came the disembodied voice of Master Ogmund, Now keep quiet. The brightly dressed man approached the company of horsemen. Their voices were muffled, as though heard from behind a wall, but their expressions told the story. Sir Roderick produced a scroll, a royal mandate of some kind, and its reading made the nobleman's countenance sour. A shouting match ensued. Estate's guards were quickly summoned and a melee broke out. The violence spread across the courtyard as ostensibly good men quickly turned to banditry. The Countess could be seen fleeing towards the bell tower, but Sir Roderick of Leroux pursued her ravenously. Though none saw what carnal acts were committed, the air in the dream soon felt thick with pins and needles. Barbarians, came the voice of Ogmund once more. When the knight emerged from the tower, he staggered and was uneven in his step. The bells began tolling and Sir Roderick doubled over. He burst from his golden armour and his form began to mutate and bubble. His eyes bulged and his skin thickened. His legs deformed and his mouth widened. Until where Sir Roderick the man had stood, there was now a monstrous toad the size of a carriage. As the beast set itself upon the survivors of the estate, the scene rippled like the surface of a pond and went black. 
The circle awoke from its dream. Pavel's head hung low at the thought that the order he served was host to that sort of depravity. Sophia looked to Pavel, then to the magician. What can be done? Simple, Ogdman said, rising to his feet. Now that we know the why of it, the order of the lily must end. How do you mean? Are they to continue killing themselves to the last man? Is that what I said? No, I said the order of the lily must end. Those under its banner must know the truth of what happened here. The order itself must be disbanded. And the countess finally laid to a deserved rest. Pavel stared hard at the magician with beady, obsidian eyes. The magician calmly placed a hand on the creature's shoulder. Don't fear, he said, smiling. They will listen. And so, days later, after the Countess of Craden was laid to rest, the Duchess herself was petitioned by Lady Sophia of Fenris and Master Ogmund, and the Knights of the Lily were ordered to disband. As the last of its members laid down his shield and spoke the words in the court of the Palace of Meldan, miles away, the bells of Craden Estate rang. When the tower rang its last, Pavel of Cradleback was transformed and drew breath as a man for the first time in months. He was given fresh clothes, saw the return of his mare and was ceremoniously escorted from the grounds by the Lady Sophia and an entourage of his own brothers-in-arms. As the company rode for home and the distance between Pavel and the crumbling manor grew, his heart found relief, though hidden behind it was a haunting consumption. What had driven him to take the oath against the beast wasn't a sense of nobility or love, but hatred. He knew also that it had not been selflessness which had fueled many of his brother's efforts, but pride, vanity and a lust for glory. In their quest to extinguish an evil, they had merely been its perpetrators, even from the very beginning. He thought back to when he met the beast's eyes for the first time, his own gaze blinded by a self-righteous fury, and wondered what he might have done differently had he known the truth. But what had once tortured him was now his lone consolation, the uncertainty of never knowing if the creature he had struck down had been his own father. Perhaps not and that was a small lie he would grow to permit himself. A balm for an aching heart. He took his solace from the fact that once and for all, the beast of Meldan could rest. The End <laughs>